Today we are starting a new sermon series for the year. Not sure how long it's going to go, but we are going to start at the beginning. Uh, It's loosely titled, The Whole Idea of It is From the Beginning to the End. And you might think, my goodness, are we doing the Bible in a year plan? Well, maybe in your own... (laughs) In your own personal devotions, that would be fantastic, and there's a lot of really good options out there. A quick Google search will help you find one. No, what we are going to look at um, from the beginning to the end is how the beginning of the Bible sets the framework and the foundation for all of our theological discussions after that, and how a lot of what is there is also going to be at the end, the the stability of God, the grand and greatness of God, the, the, the love of God in, poured out into creation and humanity, our response to him, the mess we have found. Some of these big issues, it's really good to kind of get back to the beginning, but we don't only want to stay at the beginning because there are implications to the end. When God says, I am, in that fantastic statement, to Moses, I am that I am, tell them that I am has sent you. Uh, That I am encompasses he who was and is and is forevermore. And so we're going to look at that from the beginning to the end. And so we are starting at the most appropriate beginning, Genesis 1, verse 1, today. Let's offer one more brief word of prayer and then we will kick it off. Loving Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have shown yourself to us, that you are not a God who stays so distant, but you have revealed yourself, you want to be known, you want us to search you out. And so as we begin this journey into your word, this diving deep into these passages, I pray that you would reveal yourself more and more uh, through the presence of your Holy Spirit, and especially as we see you embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in your name. Amen. There are some fantastic beginnings in literature, some really good opening statements to some of the best writings that have ever been written down and cataloged and kept. We can think of the opening to The Old Man and the Sea by Ernest Hemingway. He was an old man who fished alone in a skiff in the Gulf Stream, and he had gone 84 days now without taking a fish. Makes you think of a man who's alone but experienced, uh, but right now he's maybe a little down on his fortunes or his successes. We can think of the opening line to Moby Dick by Herman Melville. Who knows it? Call me Ishmael, and off you go. A book about this big started out with three simple words. Call me Ishmael. Then one of my favorites, the opening to A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch, uh, the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. 
And if you were to title a book, A Tale of Two Cities, and you open with uh, a list of opposing dichotomies, that's a great line and a solid beginning because I would certainly read that and go, how does this fill in and finish out through the rest of this tale of two cities? I would propose to you, though, that the best opening line in recorded literature, if you will, is what we read in Genesis 1.1. If you have your finger there, it's not hard to find. (laughs) First book, first chapter, first verse, we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Why do we start there? And why is that the best opening line in recorded literature? It's deep, and it's profound, and it sets the stage for everything that comes after that. We're talking theology. We're talking ontology, your being. We're talking anthropology, the understanding of mankind. We're talking soterology, the study of salvation is in there. We're even talking a little bit about Christology, the study and understanding of Christ. Because John 1.1 takes us right back to here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it goes on to say that that Word was God created So we have all of this encapsulated in one sentence. It is deeply profound, and it is often largely abused. I don't mean by that in that Christians tend to abuse it, or those who believe in God's creation, but mankind has strayed or misused or worked it around because we are trying to find something other than. If, as Christians, we believe that we are built in the image of God, that God has had his hands on us and we're shaped like that, that means a part of us has a spiritual aspect. We're not just flesh and blood and bones and matter. We're not just our emotions and the firing of our synapses in the brain. We're not just that. Uh, We also have a sensitivity to spiritual things. Uh, Everybody demonstrates that throughout history, and where people are searching for that deeper, moral, existential, spiritual thing, they come to various conclusions. Because I would propose that even the atheist has a spiritual conclusion. Uh, The agnostic has a spiritual conclusion. Uh, The various religions obviously have spiritual conclusions. What we have and what we're going to start with, though, is from Sister White and Testimonies 8. And and just bear with me because this is going to get kind of filled in. Those who question the reliability of the Scripture records have let go their anchor and are left to beat about upon the rocks of infidelity. When they find themselves incapable of measuring the Creator and His works by their own imperfect knowledge of science— they question the existence of God and attribute and, and attribute infinite power to nature. And starting with 
Charles Darwin most famously. I believe there were some rumblings before that, but certainly with Darwin, that's what we have. And that has permeated our culture and our scientific understanding around the globe. At some point, way back when, and that number keeps getting larger and larger and larger, uh, what was not there all of a sudden became there, and what was empty and void all of a sudden had this flash, and things appeared, and it had everything that we needed to finally kind of sort itself out all the way until we have now. I've super condensed that. That's basically it. Uh, You have to ask yourself, well, then what caused the spark or, you know, why or how long was there nothing? And then, yeah, I mean, there's more questions that we never really seem to come around to an answer. But it seems that with the beginning of kicking God out of the consideration, then it makes sense you would start to kick the rest of Scripture out of the consideration. God as creator means you can start to exclude many, many other portions of Scripture and eventually all of Scripture, including its objective external effect on us. Uh, I believe that's why we've led to a very subjective society today. But then it's also this, because some Christians might also say that we have to exclude all of that scientific stuff uh, and maybe separate it from the Creator and, and what we see from the Bible. Well, there's a harmony. Sister White goes on. In true science, there can be nothing contrary to the teaching of the Word of God, for both have the same author. A correct understanding of both will always prove them to be in harmony. Truth, whether in nature or in revelation, is harmonious with itself in all its manifestations. But the mind not enlightened by God's Spirit will ever be in darkness in regard to His power. This is why human ideas in regard to science so often contradict the teaching of God's Word. Our first look at this first verse brings back into harmony God and nature, God and creation, God and science. Many arguments have been presented for and against the existence of God. Many. Multiples. We're going to consider the one, though, that has had the greatest influence on Christianity's understanding of God's preexistence. Because if we take note in how this verse kicks it off, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We have to wonder about the beginning and God already being there. Because that's what we read. Moses was not inspired God did not impress upon him, and Moses didn't take it upon himself to start explaining why God was there, or how God got there, or anything like that. It was a statement of fact that God, there. After that, don't stress. After that, don't consider or contemplate. But men like to do that, and so... You have arguments that try to explain how God could or could not have been pre-existing. But our first real takeaway that we'll look at today is that God pre-exists creation. First, the greatest influence in favor of God's pre-existence, it was first presented by, believe it or not, Plato and Aristotle. 
they have some influence on our Christian understanding of things. It was further developed by Thomas Aquinas and how he has phrased it and concluded has carried through all the way, and it actually still stands up. Uh, other attempts at this really haven't been quite as good. We call this the first cause argument. The first cause argument. And it goes something like this. As you study nature, as we look around at the natural world and the order of those laws, we observe cause and effect in nature. Is that true? Let's use an example. Um, rain. We get a lot of rain in this area. We've had a lot of rain this week. Well, how does rain occur? Well, rain is caused by the moisture in the air. As it cools, it condenses and eventually becomes so heavy, it can't stay up there, it falls. Well, you have to ask yourself, how did the moisture get into the air? What caused the moisture to be into the air? Well, evaporation, right? As the liquids heat up, they evaporate, they rise, and so on. Well, what causes evaporation? Well, heat. What causes the heat on our planet? The sun. What causes the heat in the sun to occur? Well, I can't tell you the intricacies of that. It's a very complex kind of nuclear thing that's going on in, in this ball of a hot and, and gassy and fiery furnace out there, and that generates the heat. Well, what causes that reaction to happen? Do you see what, what we're getting at? If you follow that chain and all of the multiples of causes and effects as we can observe in nature, if you follow every one of them in the observable universe all the way back, as far as you can go, you eventually get to a point where you don't have a cause. At some point, you run out of causes, Aquinas proposed that that's where we see God. That's God. In other words, God is the first cause. He caused according to his divine will, and then every effect after that occurs. That also means that God is the first cause, meaning that he is the uncaused we see what I'm saying with that. Nothing caused God. Nothing impacted upon him to affect his existence. He just simply is there. He is the uncaused, and he's the first cause of every other effect afterwards. And that continues through to today. And this is, this is carried out in Scripture. We read from, for example, Psalm chapter 90 and verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That is the psalmist's way of describing God as the first initiator of everything else that we see. Before anything was formed, you were there. And not just that you were there, but from way back when, until way back the, until way forward there. This means that as we read Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, we are not reading about God's beginning. And we shouldn't try to read into that because Moses doesn't give us that, and neither does God. 
God doesn't take any efforts at explaining his preexistence. He just is. Or he, as he would say it, I am. I just am. Rather, what we are reading from Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 is how God inspired Moses to record the beginning of that history which uniquely pertains to man, to mankind. Because in this account, in the beginning, we already see God. That means that God pre-exists the beginning. Go follow it all the way back and you find God. He's already there. Genesis 1.1, if you and I are to want to consider the beginning of us and mankind's history and mankind's beginning and mankind's everything else, we would be foolish to exclude this very powerful best opening line in literature. Because this right here is not talking about God in terms of the beginnings, but about everything that we know and can observe and can experience and can hope in and can claim and can accept and grasp and receive and touch and smell, you name it. It starts with this record, and right at the very beginning, God has already been. And I love that. I love thinking that God doesn't have a beginning because everything that we know has a beginning and an end. And God does not. I also don't lose any sleep over trying to figure it out. I don't lose any sleep over that. What we also find here, our second main point that, that is ex- extremely crucial to our from the beginning idea is not just that God is there and that he exists and he pre-exists and he began things, but that that beginning of things is unique to the God of heaven. Because what we read in Genesis 1.1 is that God doesn't just simply exist and he doesn't just simply make, he creates. And why, why do I draw that distinction? Why is it necessary to draw the distinction? In Hebrew, we have two words for making things. Uh, One is granted to humans. Uh, So that's like uh, humans and God. That's making, building, fashioning, shaping. Uh, If you cut down a tree and shave it down and make planks and take those planks and build a table, you have made a table. That's the verb you would use in the Hebrew. It's the verb that is used when God causes Adam to fall asleep and takes the rib and makes uh, Eve out of that rib. That is a building, a fashioning, a shaping from something into something else. There is one verb, though, that is only credited to God. Bara. That is different than making. That is different than building. That is creating. That is the the full understanding that God does not require material to then cause or to have more come out of. Creating bara is only given to God. You and I cannot create. We use that word, but in the biblical sense, we cannot create. We can imagine 
and, and make something, but we cannot imagine and then it's there. We cannot imagine and speak it and it happens. We cannot will ourselves upon something and then it appears God can. And that is a very awesome distinction. When God creates, God does something that cannot be given to anything else. And it separates him from other claimed gods. You can find this in the structure, and you're just going to have to forgive me. I'm going to be a little bit of a Hebrew uh, nerd for just a moment. Uh, that was my favorite of uh, that was one of my favorite subjects in my in my undergrad. Um, I I learned. I took three semesters worth of it, and then I taught it for two years, and then I did teaching assistant with an Old Testament professor who taught me the Hebrew, and he's got I believe two PhDs in ancient writings and and so on. Um, so I liked it. I asked a lot of questions about it. I kind of ate it up. It, it's a little bit where I, I kind of go into a, a little bit of a, lit, a literary nerd. It was the first verse that I memorized in Hebrew. Bereshit bara Elohim et hashamayim et haaretz. That's Genesis 1.1. All right? I like it. It rolls off the tongue very beautifully to me. <laughs> what we need to see here, and this is how... In the Hebrew, we get a couple of incredible things that don't really come clear in the English. One, the use of the word Elohim. The word Elohim is the most used name for God in the Old Testament. We have El, Eloah, and Elohim. These are the generic God or gods when you come across them in your Bible. Elohim is used more than 2,750 times. And it is used interchangeably with the God of heaven and the other gods, lowercase g, that the Bible talks about. As a plural, and this is important, Elohim is a plural word. Uh, we can think of um, you know, a person or people. People is the plural. El is singular. Elohim is plural. Okay? As the plural, it can refer to pagan deities, in which case the Bible translates it, lowercase g, gods. And we can think of the commandment in Exodus 20, verse 3, that says, you shall have no other gods before me. That's Elohim. Okay? It can also refer to the God of Israel. Well, how do we draw the distinction? One when, the God, when Elohim is used with the God of Israel, you have a plural word paired with a singular verb. We're getting a little into the grammar. They don't do that in Hebrew. If it's plural one, the other one's plural. If it's singular one, the other one's singular. So it would be like, it would be like this. Um, we is sitting in church. We don't do that in English, right? We are. God would be a, they is in church. And that's why we can see this plural with a singular verb, bara. The Greeks understood this in the, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. They use hotheos, 
That's, that's the singular word for God. They understood that Moses was not writing about the God of heaven in a, in a plurality, but in a singularness. And the Greeks got that, uh, whoever translated it then, those scholars. What we see in, in this, and this, this is, we're going we're to draw this together, we don't want to make something out of it that it's not. The use of God here in the plural is not a conversation on the Trinity at all. Not one bit. Uh, the church, the understanding of the Trinity, that triune in one person God, didn't really come about until the New Testament Christian era. In the Old Testament, there is an idea of plurality with God, but not Trinity-ness with God. Does that make sense? What we're reading here is a very common practice in the Hebrew where the plural, it's called the Hebrew plural, the Hebrew plural is speaking to the grandness of God, the largeness of God, the vastness and the infinite power of God. Plurality in the Hebrew, especially in relation to God, is size, strength, awesomeness of God. And that makes really good sense if we understand, if we accept that what we're reading is an account not on theological existence, but an account on creation. The account on creation necessitates a grand and powerful and mighty God. It necessitates a God that is pre-existing and larger than what he is about to do. And in the Hebrew, that comes through by using pluralness. It's a literary convention that reflects special reverence, in other words. It is fair to say, though, that the creation account does imply that there's plurality. We see that the Spirit of God is mentioned in the next verse. You go farther on, come let us make man in our image. Right. So we have an understanding that it's not a single entity in this point. Um, but it's one and not the other. The regular appearance of Elohim rather than Adonai or Yahweh, the actual you know, the name, the special holy name of God, is due to the theological importance of this verse, and that is as creator. Adonai, Yahweh, is covenantal, mostly in use. God is creator. Creation extols God's transcendence and the power of his spoken word. So Elohim is used. And when Moses was writing this in the hills of Moab and God has inspired upon him, I believe maybe with this panoramic vision of of this is happening and God is there and things are spoken and it happens. And that was already a time when you had other cultures with other gods. And to write it this way is to separate from, to sanctify, to set apart as correct and holy and reverential the God of heaven who created bara, the heavens and the earth. And if God cannot create, if God cannot make something out of nothing, that has very serious ramifications for you and I. 
Because if it's from the beginning to the end, what implications does that have for us today? Well, God as pre-existing creator is necessary for salvation. It's, he, this understanding is necessary for our salvation. If you are a cosmic accident, then who cares what moral decisions you make or anybody else makes? If, if all of what we have around here happened because the cosmoses burped at some point, then really what does it matter if some genocidal maniac decides to wipe out a race? Because according to that understanding of how things came to be, he would be correct. The survival of the fittest. If God's preexistence as creator didn't happen and we were all just kind of here, or God maybe started things but he didn't manage things, then pure subjectivity would also be correct and no one would know what right and wrong is. Your right is as equal as my right. And by that I don't mean rights, I mean being right, being correct about something. And if that's the case, you can't have laws, you can't arrest people, you can't stop murders, you can't, in fact, you shouldn't because you would be violating nature if you do that. Because there is nothing that we observe in nature that actually tells us about morality issues or ethical issues. You don't really see that. That can only come from a God who is apart from nature. He is not bound by what he has created and he is not infused into what he has created. You get rid of this pan, pantheistic and panentheistic idea of God's being in the chairs that we sit on, because if that were the case, y'all should stand up. That would be a little rude to God. God is apart from what he's created, and he is at the beginning. But how, what does this mean in terms of our salvation? Each one of us, like we started with, have a spiritual aspect to us. God desires us to search him out, to find the uncaused God. You need to find God at the beginning of all of your considerations, because without that beginning, without finding God, you don't have hope beyond what we currently have. If you can go back through your whole life and you can go back through the many different options and you haven't found God, then you might as well stop searching and you might as well give up now. The fact that God is already in the beginning and the fact that God creates out of nothing, he's the only one who can do that, means that at some point in your life, go back through all of the mistakes that you have made. Go back through all the good things you have done. Go, go, as, go wherever you need to kind of search and look. And when you find God, he is already there waiting for you to find him. And if he's already there in the beginning before you've made a mess of things, then he can also bara in your life. The Bible speaks clear. Create in me 
a clean heart. That creating can only happen by a God who knew you before the earth was formed, who was there before the earth was formed and before your parents ever found each other. You have to find God to find salvation, and you have to find a God who can completely fix you, root and core, at the beginning of you to actually have victory over sin. Since sin entered into this world, we understand, we firmly believe the Bible teaches it's not just actions. It's a part of us. We have that nature. And only the God who can create nature out of nothing can, can, can clean out and overcome and strengthen and save from a nature that we can't shape or, or affect on our own. We cannot cause upon our sinful nature. God can. Your salvation depends on you discovering the God who pre-exists creation, who wants to reveal himself to you. Are you searching for him? Are you looking? Have you found him? Are you hanging on to him? The theory that God did not create matter when he brought the world into existence is without foundation. In the formation of our world, God was not indebted to pre-existing matter. On the contrary, all things, material or spiritual, stood up before the Lord Jehovah at his voice and were created for his own purpose. The heavens and all the host of them, the earth and all things therein, are not only the work of his hand, they came into existence by the breath of his mouth. And so when Jesus claims that all of heaven and earth has been given to him, all of a sudden that means that he is your Lord and Savior. He is your creator in your life. And whatever you're struggling with, he can barah in you what you need for salvation, for eternity. That reshaped and remade nature that we all have. It's also very closely connected to salvation because, and we could all say this with me, we are saved by grace through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. If you read Hebrews 11.3, we also read this, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. If you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and by faith we accept what Genesis 1-1 is saying, then by faith that creation account carries you into your Savior experience. And we all need that, my friends. We all need that. The psalmist writes this, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. He spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. And what am I compared to the galaxies out there? If he can do all of that, I can claim he can do it in my life as well. I want to encourage you today, from the beginning to the end, God is there. From the beginning to the end, God creates and he recreates and for his 
most loved creation on this planet. He will recreate you as many times as you go to him. It is not a one and done. From the beginning to the end, God is interested in his creation. And from the beginning to the end, he's going to keep creating uh, on us and in us and, and with us until ultimately in the end, we get to observe a new creation of the heavens and the earth. I am looking forward to it. I am looking forward to our consideration of God from the beginning to the end and its implications for us. I encourage you today, as you are thinking about what you might do in this new year, and the last time I was here, we talked about resolutions and kind of how to make goals. I would encourage you today, in fact, not not I. Who am I? Don't do it because of me. God implores you to seek him this year. If you're going to make a goal of anything this year, if you're going to choose a literary anything this year, and and there are great books out there, it's not Pastor Aaron. Who am I? I'm, I'm dust. God implores you. I have revealed myself to you. I have shaped and created everything. Find me. Don't find me 10 years from now. Start searching and find me today. Begin with the best literary work, the Bible, and seek he who created you. That is the best goal, the best beginning, leading to the best end that you could ever hope or ask for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again that you revealed yourself to us. We thank you that in your divine will and purpose, you saw fit to not leave this corner of your universe empty and stagnant and in chaos. We thank you that in your divine will, you spoke and were present at some point in the beginning and before the beginning. And in your infinite wisdom and your infinite love, you were not satisfied with the void. You desired to create, to call into existence, to bring about this world and the heavens and all that we not only know, but because of your love, we get to enjoy. But all of that would be for naught if we didn't find you. So I pray that according to your will, you would reveal yourself to us in a powerful and personal way today and tomorrow and all the way to the end when you come to take us finally home. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would impress upon us to seek after you, that your Holy Spirit would guide us as we seek, that he would protect us from distractions and confusion. I pray that your Holy Spirit would bless us with the power necessary to overcome our stumbling blocks. And I pray that you would pour out grace and faith into our lives, that we might seek after you, believe in you, and claim you as our own, so that because we accept that you have claimed us as your own. Lord, I thank you for hearing our prayer. Please go with us today, we pray. Amen.